0: Good morning, and what's up, Transit Church? Good to see everybody. I was waiting till my sound kicked in. Jonathan's back there doing his thing. All right, so uh, we're going to be in Hebrews today. So grab your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to read two passages, actually, one out of chapter 9, the other out of chapter 10. Um, This series, we've been a little bit all over the Bible As we talk about the spiritual disciplines this morning, we're going to talk about the spiritual discipline of worship. And uh, there's no place to talk about that like the book of Hebrews. So Hebrews chapter 9 is going to be in the latter half of your Bible, almost towards the end. And we're going to be reading verses 11 through 14 together. And then we're going to flip over to chapter 10, read a few verses, verses there. The words are on the screen for you as well. Let's read together. and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And flip over to chapter 10. We're going to read starting in verse 11, and we're going to go all the way through verse 18. Read with me. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. We pray that It would not return void, but will have the effect that you intend for it to have uh, in our very being, down to our souls. God, we pray that we would have ears to hear and hearts to receive all that you uh, will say to us through your scriptures. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're continuing in a a series called Rhythms, and in that we're looking at spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines being those habitual, systematic things that, as I say, help you get connected and stay connected to God. And today uh, we are looking at the spiritual discipline of biblical worship. Uh, Of all the spiritual disciplines, this one is the hardest to define well because it's really all-encompassing. In in, in a way, all the spiritual disciplines— Uh, involve worship. Uh, It could be said rightly that uh, worship as a topic is pervasive because it happens at every moment of every day. Um, The Bible conveys to us that God has created us as worshipers. We are worshiping beings, but the fact of the matter is many of us don't do that. Well, we worship, but we're not always worshiping the the one that God prescribes that we worship. We worship oftentimes things and people, but God would prescribe for us in the Bible that our, the object of our worship should be him. Most of us, we're always worshiping. We're worshiping something or someone. In fact, the object of our worship fluctuates from day to day and perhaps even from moment To a moment. In the Bible, to worship means to ascribe worth to something or perhaps even someone. What we ascribe worth to has influence over us and it's going to make you do one thing or another, perhaps even believe one thing or another. Biblical worship demands that we habituate, that we systematize our lives so that we are primarily ascribing the worth that's due to the God that we serve. I like what Don Whitney says. Don, Don Whitney's professor um, at Southern Sem- Seminary in Kentucky. He defines worship as focusing on and responding to God. And if you think about uh, those rhythmic, systematic, habitual things that you do to try to stay close to God, reading your Bible, praying, um, fasting, meditating on Scripture, reading the, reading the Bible and such, uh, that's what you're doing. You're focusing on God for... Minutes or moments, and uh, you're responding to what God has already said and what He's what He's already done. And so, think about all the, the spiritual disciplines that we've already talked about. Bible intake, when we are reading, meditating, uh, um, memorizing Scripture, we are we are we're worshiping. We are uh, reminding ourselves of what God has said, and we're responding to it. If God is speaking, we're listening. The same thing with prayer. Uh, whether we're listening. Uh, uh, In silence or solitude or whether we are talking to God. We are expressing worship to God as we are praying to Him. At the end of every one of our services here at The Transit, we respond to uh, what God has said through the songs and through uh, the rest of our liturgy by observing the sacrament of the Lord's table, communion. And we'll do that uh, at the end of our service today. And what we're doing there is we are remembering the good news, the good news of Jesus who came and died and lived for us. We are worshiping. And then, of course, those of you that give, giving is an act of worship. Whether you give, uh, 80% of our church gives online. So when you're giving online, regardless of how you give, putting a check or uh, cash in the offering, uh, offering box in the back, you're worshiping. You're saying, God, I acknowledge that all that I have belongs to you, and in obedience to you, I'm going to worship you by giving a portion of that back as you have prescribed me to do. Another aspect of our worship is singing. We've just uh, done that this morning. Um, What are we doing when we sing? Obviously, uh, we're verbalizing our praise to God. We sang that song, Alleluia. We'll, We'll look at that word in a little bit more detail today. But in singing, I, I like I like to commend this to you. You're actually doing more than just uh, verbalizing your praise. What you're doing is you're engaging your mind and your heart. And I mean, I would tell you that's one of the things that we we work to to pick songs that are going to do that for you here. You Ever been to? A, uh, I'm not I'm, I'm not picking on a church, but have you ever gone to any kind of worship gathering and the songs sound like you're like kissing Jesus? I usually say suck and face with Jesus. Like it's it's all about you. Lord, I love you. I'm gonna give you my whole life and you know everything is about you. And you know, songs like that are okay, but here's the truth. We only do that half the time because our worship is half-hearted. And so one minute, yes, our focus is gonna be on God, worshiping him, giving him our all, and then we leave that space, we go outside and we're gonna cuss out the person that's right next to us, or the you know, that car that cuts us off <laughs> out in traffic. And so Singing songs like that can, can sell you short because it's not about you. Worship should be, uh, should be directed towards God. And so the lyrics of the music that we want to sing is music that engages our minds and our hearts. And so what, um, what do we offer to you, or at least what we try to, is, is music, words that have deep content, that are going to remind you of who God is, His character, uh, what he's done, the, the person and the work of Jesus, so that it catches, uh, I mean, it, it just grabs hold of you and it's helping you to process what God has done through song. And uh, you know, a lot of times, uh, one of the ways I've memorized scripture mostly is, is by setting it to music. Put something to music and it'll be with you forever. But it's not just engaging our minds. Music also engages our heart. And that's why I mean music. I mean music just like it, it does that to us. It makes it want to sway a little bit. It gets in you, and uh, it it moves your affections. And so a melody that you just can't get out of your head for like three or four days, or perhaps you know Andrew beating on the drum. I mean that. I mean Andrew's a good drummer. Or perhaps it's it's Jonathan, you know, playing one of the. I mean those awesome chords that he plays on the violin. Or Amanda this morning, girl. I should just stop and have you come up and give a concert. I mean all those things work together to set a tone and provoke a mood in us that God ordains that would stir our affections for Him. so the Bible um, gives us a whole set of thinking in regards to worship. A lot of times we sell ourselves short, we sell this area short by defaulting that worship is is only what it 's singing so i 'm coming to church, I want to make it in church on time so i can i can I can I can do worship. We talking we thinking about the singing part of of worship, but really worship is all of life. Worship is everything that we do and in a in a church service, worship is from beginning to end. You getting your coffee, putting your kids in kids ministry, coming in here fellowshipping. it's the the singing, it's the announcements, it's it's my sermon, it's our response at the end, it's when you leave. Worship is all Of those things. It's comprehensive, and I would encourage you, God wants us to have a comprehensive view on worship. That's why we're looking at this as a spiritual discipline. So today, very very shortly, we're going to explore some words. Uh, It's going to be like a Bible study. We're going to quickly go through seven or eight words that are Old Testament words that show us what praise and worship to God look like, and we're going to ask ourselves three questions for each one of these words. what does this word tell us about God? Secondly, what does this tell about ourselves? And thirdly, what does it tell us about how we're supposed to respond? And here's here's our goal. I actually want you to be encouraged if you are worshiping God in these ways. It it perhaps will be informative to some of you that haven't explored this area of worship. But for some of you, it's going to be challenging because the Bible is going to tell you that you should be doing some things that that you in your heart is like, I don't want to do that. And so, I mean, when we hear the word, we're responsible for it. So I hope that that will happen today and you can be not only encouraged, but be moved along in terms of what you think about worship. Seven actions of worship or praise. The first one is Hawa. Hawa. Everybody say Hawa. Hawa. I might not be pronouncing that wrong. I've never had Hebrew. I should have Nick come up here and talk to me about it. All right. So this word is used 75 times in the Old Testament to talk about how we worship uh, God or or idols. Uh, it's translated uh, to to mean bow down. If you think about the culture we live in, there ain't a whole bunch of us bowing down a lot, right? I mean, the best that we will do is like we'll you know about if you if you're taking karate or something, you might bow down to your sensei or whoever your 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 leader is. There's not a lot in our culture that that requires us uh, to bow down. In the ancient world, this wasn't just like bowing down as in in um, at the waist. It actually meant to lay down on the ground, prostrate with your head down. It's like prostrate, laying down, bowing down, and you did that in front of someone who deserved your respect. So let's ask ourselves three questions. Where does this word tell us about God? Firstly, uh, if we're bowing down to somebody, that person deserves respect. That's what it would have been in the ancient world. Um, The Bible conveys to us that God is a king. He was Israel's king. Jesus is our king. And so we should uh, see God as the king and he deserves respect. What does this word tell us about ourselves? If God is the king, we are to respect him as his subjects. He's important, we're less important. Thirdly, how should we respond to God? We should bow down. We should bow down. Psalmist says, Psalm 95, verse 6 Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. If you think about this, this is kind of natural to you. If I would say right now, all right, let's pray, half of you all, whether you are a Christian or not, are automatically, actually more than half, almost all of you are going to just like bow your head a little bit. You might not close your eyes. A few of you are going to be renegades and like look up and be looking around and staring and stuff. But for the most part in our culture, when someone says, let's pray, Christian or not, church or not, it's just instinctive. We bow, we bow down. And and if you are gathered around your dinner table and you are giving thanks, then very naturally for most of us, we bow our heads uh, in respect to God. And so this is a sign of respect. We bow. God wants us to be, he wants us to humble ourselves before him. But let me caution you with this, because many of you actually do have an attitude of humility toward God. There's a physical aspect here that God is demanding from us that some of us don't do. Uh, this word could mean bow. It could also be, mean kneel. When's the last time you actually knelt before God in humility and respect toward him? God is saying he wants us to kneel or even lie prostrate. There's a physical gesture primarily to remind us of who we are and who he is as our king. The second word is abod. This word generally gets translated as worship. If you've got an NIV Bible, whenever you see this in the Old Testament, it will say worship. But the ESV uh, that you're reading out of your pew Bible gets it right. It means to worship, to labor, or to serve. And it brings to mind hard work. I mean, physical labor, even labor that might make you sweat. Uh, Moses writes in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Idea there is Adam was doing what God told him to do. The world was still perfect. What was he doing? He was working, laboring, probably sweating in the garden. But more importantly, he was worshiping. So what does this word tell us about God? If we take Genesis 2.15 as an example of how this word is used in Scripture, then it tells us that God is in charge and God has prescribed that we work. He's the boss. We're working for God. What does this tell us about ourselves? Se- several things. Here's the first. Work is a part of our worship. It's not a mistake that we work, that we get up, and that, um, I mean, very few of us, there's a few, but very few of us want to just, like, spend our days in laziness. Okay? It's in us to actually be active and to to do things. I think this says that we should expect to work and labor hard for, for life's necessities. That really is what God was telling Adam to do in the garden. Of course, when sin comes, it did become a necessity. God said, your work is going to be hard. You're going to sweat by your brow just to bring up the things from the ground that you need to eat. We can apply this to the church. A lot of times it applies to how we serve. That's one of the, the, the ways this word is, is defined. And so perhaps you've been in a a church that's done like cleanup days, you've gone into an impoverished neighborhood, or you've gone and served uh, a particular section of town, and it's like a rundown house, and you bring in your skill, your own tools, and you're going to like fix something up that's, that's broken to help someone that can't help themselves. Our church in North Carolina used to do this with several other churches in the city, um, and it was a, a huge thing. Your church is serving. Our, our church has done this. We've gone downtown to Central Union Mission, and we spent a whole day there cleaning up, cleaning, scrubbing toilets, scrubbing um, showers, uh, replacing linen, staying all day, just doing like odds and ends uh, in, in manual labor to, to serve that homeless population there. And at night, we serve dinner to about 150 people. What's that? The idea behind it is, is work, but more than just work, it's, it's service, and the way that this word works, it's also worship. You're you're working for a purpose, but ultimately behind that is you are worshiping God. Here's one application of this that involves most of us in this room, and it's you and your job. You're working. And so here's one way that you can see this. Uh, you know, that your boss that works in the corner office or the office with the most windows or the biggest desk or whatever your, your boss has, that's, that's kind of... Uh, a little different than everybody else your 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 boss in the corner office is not your boss. God is your boss and God guess what god 's got a heavenly office it's like it 's like it takes up the whole space god is is your boss and and here 's the thing with this we are we are either always honoring or dishonouring God in the way that we work, so when you 're working well you 're working hard you 're doing it for God. But when you're slacking off, you're doing that for him, too. The New Testament says it right. Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And so how should we respond to God? We should give him our all. Why? Because work is worship. The third word, halal. Um, This word is used more than any other word in the Old Testament in regards to worship and praise. And we sang this word, a version of it this morning. Uh, The root word is halal. Uh, hallelujah all right that's two words. you have hallelujah, which means to boast in that's one of the the word that's one of the meanings of this word and Yah which is a shortened name for God the Hebrews called God Yahweh and so halal means to to praise God more specifically it means to brag about God brag about the God who knows my name. The psalmist, Psalm 150, one of the most famous psalms, the actual last psalm. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. There's six verses. I'm only reading the first three, but there's two clauses in each verse, and it starts with the word praise. Each time, it's using this word, the word halal. So what does this word tell us about God? It tells us that God is worthy of our praise. The Psalms are filled with this poetic language about God describing him in beautiful images like Psalm 150, and it's telling us, it's exhorting us that God deserves our praise, and if he deserves it, we should be bringing it. So what does it tell us about ourselves? Paul says it best in Ephesians 2:8-9 that salvation comes by grace, through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. We we have nothing to boast in. Everything that we have, everything comes from God. And, and our boast should be in him. So how should we respond to God? This, this word says that we should be bragging on God. We should be bragging on uh, about him. We should be bragging to him. We should be boasting in God to our own hearts and to those that we come into contact out in the community, our friends. Why? Because everything that we have is directly attributed to God in some way. God is really the only creative force, creative force in the world. If you think about it, that the things that we think we're creating, we're just taking what God has already made and we're making something from that. Everything that we have comes from God. Our boasting, our bragging should point to him. Then how should we respond to God? Brag on him. Boast in him to our own hearts and to people around us. The next word is yada. This is the second most frequently used word in the Old Testament describing acts of worship. Um, It comes from the word yad, which means hand. Y'all familiar with this, all right? So we were doing this this morning, some of you, okay? What is is this? It's, It's extending the hand, or throwing your hands out also means to confess, and so this is—you guys aren't strangers to this. Uh, there are people in our congregation that, when when the feeling hits them, or the song is right, or you know, they just want to submit a, uh, a a sacrificial offering to God with their hands raised, which is what this word means. They lift their hand. We sang a song that said, um, "Waiting here for you." I had to think about that song. Was it, "Waiting here for you." With my hands lifted high in praise. That's what this song, that's what this word is talking about. There's another way that Yada is expressed, though, and it's like this. And my wife was up here in, in, in the front doing this same thing. It's your, your hands and your arms extended, palms up. Guess what this means? It, it's, 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 this is surrender. This is neediness. It's telling God, you know, Lord, I, I need you. I, I can't do anything without you. And so what does this word tell us about God? I think the best way to, to talk about what this word um, says about God is to first look at it from ourselves, and, and it's like this. This is yada, we need. Everything that we need, God can provide. And it's, to, and it's to trust that he's going to do that. And so what does it then say about God? It says God is the provider, and he is more than capable of giving you Everything that you need, and that's why he deserves our praise that 's why we should surrender our lives to him and be and feel free to to come to God like this, like a child that says, "Pick me up like lord help me uh, i I need you for the breath in my in my body, I need you for the strength that I need to get through this day. I need you in all these ways, and we should We should praise Him like that. This talks about posture, almost like Hawa in in bowing down. It's about your posture. You can come to God and um, know that God, like a good father, as Joseph was praying, He he knows your every need, and you shouldn't be afraid to come to Him like this and like that. Surrender with your life, but also um, give Him uh, the very um, most intimate needs of your life. The next words, uh, actually two words to come together, maha and takah. And these words mean to clap your hands, strike your hands. Everybody clap your hands. <laughs> all right. You're waking up, your, waking up your brother or sister right beside you. All right. We do this in our culture all the time, right? I mean, think about it. You're at a show. You're going to a sporting event. You just went to a, a concert of some kind. And if it, you know, even if it was decent, I mean, we're going to give like a a sympathy clap, right? Yeah, we, this, is, this is It's like cultural. We clap our hands after uh, these things. We applaud. It comes natural to us. It comes natural because you do this when you enjoy something. Uh, when you know, you're just like man, that was that was nice. I woke up this morning. I'm a tennis nut, and so I was watching a little bit of the end of the uh, Australian Open. Roger Federer. Uh, um, Rafa Nadal playing. I mean, it's, it's like taking me back. You had Venus and Serena playing. I mean, this is like over 30 tennis at its best. And uh, I mean, the, the whole family was asleep. And so I, I wanted to clap so much when Roger uh, won this morning. And so I was like, yes, I did it really quiet. I mean, this, this is what this word means: to clap our hands uh, to put them together. The Psalm says 47, 1, Psalm 47:1. Clap your hands, all peoples! Shout to God with loud songs of joy. When Jonathan was a baby, I used to sit, I used to lay him in my lap, and, and I would take his hands and put them together. And this is the song that we used to, we, that was our, our, our dad's son song. Jonathan probably didn't remember that. It's like one of my favorite psalms. Um, where does this word tell us about God? A couple things. It says that clapping our hands is a sign that we enjoy God, that we enjoy the blessing that he is to us. We enjoy how he's blessing us. We applaud God because he's victorious. That's how these words are used very often. There's another aspect, though. It says this word means to strike hands together. Um, And that could be, it's almost like a handshake, but in our culture, it could be a high five. Like, right, you're at a sporting event. uh, So next week, the Falcons are winning by 14 points over the Patriots, and you're in a party. It's like, yes, Because because the Patriots are going down. So you high five. When we, when we, I wish. All right. So when we shake hands with someone, or we striking someone, we're doing a couple things. We're, it's uh, handshaking is kind of official, right? It could be an official hand uh, handshake, or we're in agreement. And so what this connotes is God striking hands with us. In fact, God comes into covenant with us, and the covenant is He'll be our God. He invites us to be His people. And the terms of the covenant is God's going to hold up his end of the bargain, whether we do or not. What a faithful God. And so what does this tell us about ourselves? Firstly, if God is victorious, his victory is, is our victory. And we get to enjoy and bask in um, all that God has done. Why? Because God has provided victory over sin and death, which are our two enemies. I mean, those are the things that you can't conquer yourself in this life. So God comes in the form of Jesus, and he lives the life that you should live but can't. He dies on the cross in your place for your sin, and he defeats both sin and death. And we come and we, we extend our hands. We also clap our hands to, to tell God, thank you. We applaud God for what he's done. And, and how should we respond to God? Well, we need to clap our hands. Clap your hands more. Applaud the Lord. Feel free to do that and be joyful in what God. Thank you. Amen. All right, two more words. Uh, Giyal. This word means to rejoice and to circle in, in joy. It's used 44 times in the Old Testament to describe acts of worship. As I explained, this is going to make you feel uncomfortable. because This is one of those, like, you, are you sure that's what that means? So guess what this word means? In ancient times, this word meant uh, it it meant a Hebrew dance circle, to go around in a circle uh, around and about because of the joy that you felt and you're experiencing in God. And so geol means to be so jubilant that you end up moving your body. And so the psalmist says, this is a day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You've heard this psalm as a call to worship. You've heard it uh, quoted at the beginning of a church service, and I mean ecumenical events and all that stuff. And this is how we do it: This is the day the Lord has made; let us rejoice and be glad in it. And that's like God is like that. <laughs> and so, if you were in, I mean, if you were a Jew in ancient times, it has, I mean, it has the word y'all in it. Rejoice, and that rejoice isn't, uh, it isn't this static. Stifled rejoice. It's to rejoice. It's like, um, let us rejoice and be glad in it because God has done great things. They're recalling all the things that God has done, and they might grab hands and like be in this like little. I mean, they're like dancing and stuff. They're enjoying the Lord. It's an intentional movement behind it. And so, what does it tell us about God? I think this says God is a God of intentional grace and movement. Think about creation. It says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. There was, there, was, there was chaos and there was static nature of the world, and then God set things in motion. Why? Because he's a moving God. Genesis 1-2 says the, the, the Spirit was hovering over the waters. That means he wasn't stagnant. And if you think about the rhythm of the days of creation, um, God spoke, and then something came to be, and then there was darkness to light, and all these ways God is moving. There was rhythm and purpose. Things started moving because God was moving. What does this tell about ourselves? I think it isn't is going to stretch you. I think it tells us it's okay to be expressive in worship. It's not sacrilegious for you to, to move about. To, to let the lyrics of the song move you, to let the words of the song, the words of the, the music whatever's playing get into you and that you would get into it, okay? Even in church, we do this thing at the bar and at the club, in our house, with our kids, and this word is telling us we can do it We can do it before God in, in our worship. That movement is natural and we can honor God by using our bodies. No, no conga lines, right? Not talking about a conga line in church. But we can we can use our movement in worship. How should we respond to God? Some of us need to move a little bit more. Feel free to not be constricted because of what God has done. The last word is ruah, and this word means to triumphantly shout, to raise noise by shouting. It's used thirteen times in the Old Testament to describe worship. And I need to move on here. So, what does it mean about God? It reminds us that God is victorious. Usually when this word is used, um, the, the connotation is God being triumphant or victorious in battle. Think of uh, the, the the battle at Jericho. Jericho was the first city that God told Israel to go to as they were moving into Canaan, the promised land. And it was harem warfare, so they were supposed to de- decimate all of it. And God told them the craziest thing. He said, all right, walk around the city six times. On the seventh time, walk around it. And get the trumpet players to blow their trumpets. And then I want you to just shout. Everybody shout. All right, so, all right, so we're gonna shout. I don't care what you say, remember you're in church. One, two, three. Hallelujah! All right, so that's, I mean, that's what they did. And guess what happened? God caused a great victory. The wall came down and they decimated uh, their enemy going into that city. And so, what does this tell us about ourselves? It tells us God has a, I mean, He's won the victory. We can rejoice. In that we can and we can let loose our voices. You know, battlefields. Those of you who are military and been deployed, battlefields are noisy. It's noisy because of the the, me, uh, the mechanization of of uh, of warfare now. But I mean, it's it's usually not quiet. Even when it's supposed to be quiet, it's not quiet. God has won a battle for us, a battle over our enemies, sin and death. And so, how should uh, how should we respond to God? We should get excited that God has what he has done for us. And we should give him shouts of praise. All right, did you notice all these words are active words? All right, if we would look up the, 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 the syntax, we find they're all verbs. More importantly, these are all commands. Does it surprise you that God is commanding us to bow down and to lift our hands and, and to shout to him because of who he is? God wants us to do these things because it's good for us. It reminds us of who he is. It reminds us of who you are. Undoubtedly, some of, these, some of you are thinking, you know what? Mm, I ain't doing that one. It's just not in my personality to praise God like that. And I would tell you, God is not trying to impose on your personality um, a certain form of worship. But here's what you can't get past. This is in the Bible. I didn't make this up. I didn't just pull it out. These are Hebrew words behind the the, the, the words of Scripture that we read. And so God is, is, is telling us this is how he would have us come to him in worship. And even if you have a personality that you, uh, you prefer not to be demonstrative and, and to be extremely vocal in your worship, uh, God, because of what He's written, is concerned that we physically express ourselves in worship to Him, and He's given us some guidelines. So, guess what? We're gonna practice. You guys getting nervous? We're just gonna practice for a couple of minutes. I'm not gonna have you stand up, but this is a we're gonna play a oldie but goodie. So, I mean, today is it's, we're this is the spiritual discipline of worship, so it it just makes sense that we would worship, right? So these are Old Testament words, but they prescribe how we're supposed to worship today. And so what does that look like? It looks like us bowing down in submission to God, lying prostrate before him because he's worthy of that. It's, it's us lifting our hands in surrender to God. It's us uh, letting God know that we need him. It's us celebrating the triumph of God over our enemies and lifting up a shout toward him. It's praising him in all of those ways. But there's a fundamental difference between how we worship today and how the Israelites worshiped thousands of years ago. Israel was under a a sacrificial system, and that system required them to use blood The sacrifice of another, another life for their own lives. And to our modern ears, that sounds violent and offensive, but it was what God prescribed. God lived in the midst of Israel, in uh, in a tent, eventually in a temple. But even though God was in their midst, God was not near to them. You couldn't just be an ordinary person and come rightly in the presence of God to, go, to come into the presence of God, you had to be a priest. And that priest, even to get himself into the presence of God, had to sacri- sacrifice an unblemished animal, using its blood to atone for his, old, his own sin. And so a priest coming into the tabernacle, trying to minister to God, had to pass by two altars, the, 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 the burning altar outside where they sacrificed uh, all of these animals, and then you had the altar of incense that reminded them of the presence of God, and then separated by a curtain was the the most holy place, the holy of holies, and encompassed inside of there was the Ark of the Covenant, think Indiana Jones, I think the temple of doom, you had this this wooden box covered in gold. On top of it was uh, another altar, an altar-like uh, slab called the mercy seat where the atonement was was met. And then above that were angelic, uh, angelic figures called cherubim. And so to, to come into the presence of God, the, the priest had to sacrifice an unblemished animal, typically a goat, take its blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, thereby gaining his atonement. You couldn't get close to God without blood. Blood was important, as important then as it is today. Think about blood. Blood has a lot of meaning. If you're you're bleeding, that means you're dying. Blood is a sign of guilt. Think of Judas in the New Testament. Judas betrayed Jesus and he was given a, a sack of silver. He wanted to give it back after, he, after the fact, and the, the priests and the religious leaders wouldn't take it. Why? Because it was blood money. You, look, you watch a movie, and there's been some kind of a, a altercation or murder, and the character says, you have blood on your hands. What does he mean? You're, you're guilty, and you can't shake it. You can't outrun your guilt. Blood stains us. You ever get blood on a shirt? It's hard to get out. Here's the most important thing about blood. In the sacrificial system, Blood speaks of life that's been laid down for sin. The animal dies so that the people didn't have to. And so the, the ancient Jews recognized that even if they kept the law, their their best moral effort wasn't enough. They knew that they needed something outside of them to be able to stand in God's presence. And that evoked Moses to write these words in Leviticus 17. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you for." I've given it to, uh, to given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. This is an interesting verse, and of course, this is an Old Testament sacrificial verse talking about the atonement, atonement of a people thousands of years ago. But I would tell you what this verse means to them has the same meaning for us. It's true for us today. None of us, even on our best days, can qualify to come into God's presence. We all have a sin problem at the deepest level. There's nothing that you can do to fix your problem. You can't buy it. You can't con your way out of it. You can't succeed your way out of it. There's nothing that you can do to erase or escape the guilt and condemnation that comes with your sin. Because none of us can escape the sin in our lives. And like the Israelites needing a priest to atone for their sin, we all need something outside of us. And that w- that's where we come to these Hebrew verses. I'm not going to read all of them. I'm going to read two, uh, two in chapter 9 and then two in chapter 10. Verse 12, Hebrews 9, verse 12. to serve the living God, you see in the Old Testament, it required blood, the blood of an animal was never sufficient, and so you see Israel repeating these animal sacrifices over and over and over again in perpetuity and so Hebrews tells us that in the unfolding of the story of redemption, God see he sees our plight, he sees our sin, and he has two choices: I can punish them for their sin, which means death for us, the wages of sin is death. Or God can step in and he can be our substitute. What does God do? In his covenant love, he does the unthinkable. He sends Jesus and Jesus dies in our place for our sin. And then we come to Hebrews chapter 10. And it says this. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool, for his feet, verse fourteen by four is a, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And then read verse eighteen, where there is forgiveness of these uh, forgiveness of these these sins. There is no longer any offering for sin. So this verse is telling us that Jesus alone has paid the price of our forgiveness, and that I mean that is full circle. Why do we worship? We worship because we've been forgiven. Our enemies have been defeated. Jesus has defeated both sin and death on our behalf, and with his forgiveness comes freedom. Freedom from guilt, freedom from condemnation, freedom from all those things that you do habitually over and over again and seemingly can't escape. Freedom from all those ways that we try to pay our debt to God but can't. And so your forgiveness that Jesus provides for you means that you have been set free. And I think that's where all these Old Testament words come in. Our worship should reflect the victory that God has won on for, our, for our behalf. And so think about worship this way. Based upon all that God has done for us, is it too much for us to respond to God and, and worship the way he's prescribed? Is it too, too much for us to raise our hands and surrender to him? Is it too much for us to yada our hands and, and tell God, Lord, I need you for health and strength and all that you provide? Is it too much for us to kneel down and bow down before our God? I would tell you no, absolutely not. It's not that God just asked for it, but it's what he deserves. Let's be a people that, that doesn't let rocks cry out for us, and, th- and that they raise their voice louder than we can shout toward God. Let's not be a people that, that needs animal sacrifices to atone for our sin. Why? Because Jesus has done that perfectly for us to give us access to God. Not an access like the Israelites had, where they had to have a priest and multiple layers before they could come into God's presence. We can come to him right now, any day, any time, because of the blood of Jesus. That's what our worship is supposed to look like, freedom in our minds, freedom of expression with our bodies, because Jesus has set us free. So let's worship. I mean, let's, let's worship with your whole life. Let's come in here and, and feel free to worship. Let's feel free to worship when you wake up in the morning thanking God for all that he's done. Let's worship when we gather in our community groups. Let's worship when you go to work, because God has prescribed that for us, and that's the way he wants it. So let's Let's respond appropriate. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for these Hebrew words that, that remind us of, of God and his requirements and how we come to him. Lord, I would like to say that we will heed your word and do it perfectly, but we're imperfect people. So God, I pray that you would simply take from us today a sacrifice of praise for the person that raised their hands for the first time or or perhaps that even gestured, Lord God, to, to worship you in a a demonstrative way. We thank you uh, for that and pray, God, that you would grow our hearts, grow our love for you, grow us in our worship, that it might be worthy of the God that you are. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.